You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 64 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, I'm, I'm actually pretty good, thanks, uh, Valerie. I'm a little cold because it's been cold, but apart from that, I'm totally fine. I'm preparing myself, however, for a, a little sojourn in Queensland. Oh, nice. So I'm hoping it's going to be warmer up there. Why are you going to Queensland? I am going to Queensland for three days of school visits as part of the Reader's Cup that they do up there. It's a big statewide competition that they have for kids um, to encourage reading and I'm very much looking forward to going and I'm going to be a quiz master at several of the Reader's Cup trivia challenges. So that should be entertaining. Awesome. (laughs) They probably know more about my book than I do. (laughs) And while you were sitting there in the cold, are you wearing your fingerless gloves so that you can type? I am wearing my fingerless gloves really? and I have my dressing gown on over everything and, yes, I'm in my full writing regalia. <laughs> I look sensational as we speak. Meanwhile, I don't have fingerless gloves on because I've got the heater on. <laughs> oh, you say that every single time. I bet, it seems so logical. I bet my bills are better than yours, though. I'm a, I'm a sustainable kind of girl. Okay. I can possible. be just as warm in my dressing gown and I'm not burning coal. Okay. Oh, all right. So <laughs> let's see what's been happening in the world of writing and publishing and blogging this but week. What have you been doing? You oh. didn't tell us apart from the fact that you've got the heater on. That's all well. you know. What have you been up to? What have I been up to? I am not going to head to the warmth. I'm currently attempting to plan a trip to the cold oh. where hopefully they have heaters as well and that is Tasmania. Oh, it's nice down there. It's very pretty, but it is freezing at this time of year during winter. But uh, I've kind of got a window where I can take sort of like maybe three days off and I've been keen to get to Tasmania because I still have not gone to Mona. You know, the museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. So It's actually a holiday. Well, sort of part holiday, but, you know, as you know, uh, some of our team are based in Tasmania, so we will, of course, be meeting up with Liz. Hello, Liz. And, um, yeah, it should be fun. Well, so, you. you know, it's going to be mm. freezing. But anyway. <laughs> they have heaters in Tasmania, I've heard. I hope so. I hope so. But, you know, <laughs> they're not very – they don't have internet in many places. But anyway. I'm sure uh, there's some dressing gowns if you get, if you, get you know, stuck and fingerless okay. gloves. You'll be uh, fine. <laughs> anyway, let's go on to the world of writing, blogging and publishing. Tell me all about it. Well, you may remember that some months ago there was an innkeeper in Maine in the US who ran a competition where you had to write an essay about, you know, why you would like to run an inn and the prize was the inn. Mm. And um, there are in, there seems to be an increasing number of these sorts of things happening. And you may remember slightly different that the, that there was the Amtrak Writers in Residence mm. program where you can write in and you know get a long train trip somewhere where you can write on the train. But mm. somebody was so inspired by this um, lady, the innkeeper in Maine. They decided that um, they would run their own competition. Uh, so she, it, they, you know, a couple, I believe, um, the p- husband is Michael. He is a homeowner in Houston and mm. he actually submitted an essay to the innkeeper. I'm not quite sure whether they were successful or not, but he decided to do a similar thing with his own house. Mm. So... All you have to do is uh, you have to pay $150 entry fee, but you have to write an essay as well, and you could end up with this house in Houston. But that, that in that particular instance, you have to buy the house as well. You pay $150. It says potential buyers can pay $150 and submit a short essay. And if you do that, it's like a heartstrings letter, which will help to set you apart from other offers. 
Really? I thought you got the house. No. $150. You then have to buy the house as well. But then, then it says there, no, but then we're selling our house for $150. Yeah, no, I think That's you, a very confused story. But it yes. is. It's not a well-written story, but no. I do believe that you that when they're referring to buying the house, you're buying it for $150. Okay, sorry. Because right, there wow. is also a goat farm oh. in Alabama. Right. called the Humble Hearts Farm, who are doing the same thing, $150 and a short essay, and you get the goat farm. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so you, I don't know how many people want a goat farm because, you know, then you've got goats to contend with and then you've got to make it kind of work. But uh, there are those people, and we mentioned this, I think, in episode one, where there's a right a house residency in Detroit in Michigan, which offers a free renovated home to the writer. And the entry fee is only $25. And so far, they've given away one house already. So, you know, it's imagine just right, you can get a property. It's interesting, isn't it? Like, and so the technically the entry fees cover a a, some form of purchase price for the house. Well, yes, it probably needs to be. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we don't know about the state of the goat farm or the state of some of these houses. Hopefully, they're not sinkholes. I've got a friend who runs a goat farm at Mudgee. He's a great guy, and um, I have to say that he's so busy with his goats and riding horses and doing all those sorts of things. I don't think he would have time to write. Yes, well, you've got to really want the goat farm, yeah, you know. Really. To, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's interesting. So you can write write essays and win lots of things. That's very exciting. I'm going to, have to keep exactly. an eye on that trend, won't we? Well, I wish that that would be um, available in Australia because, as you know, I'm current. I've, I've wanted to buy a house recently, and if yes. only I could. Only. <laughs> if only I could just write something to get my house instead of to pay ridiculous amounts of money. That would be well, great. Let us know if you come across anything like that. We'll all be in it, okay? I certainly will. All right. So, what else have you got for us? The other thing that I've got is you may remember when we interviewed Alice Campion. And Alice Campion, of course, is the pseudonym for five Sydney writers who are in a book club and they all collaborate collaborated to write this novel. Well, this also seems to be a trend because there's also Karen Perry, which is actually Karen Galise and Paul Perry. And what happened one day, they're just, they're friends. And Karen said, you know, we're really old friends. We were meeting for a pint one night and out of the blue, Paul suggested it half as a joke, half as a writing experiment. And that was five years ago. And they're now on their third book as Karen Perry. So, you know, maybe this is a thing. Oh, look, I don't, it's not a new thing. I mean, people have sort of been doing it, like, you know, writing together. There's a couple of sisters in Australia that write um, that write books. I can't think of their names off the top of my head. Um, and, of course, I co-wrote a book yes. with a friend as well. Um, I think it's one of those things that it's uh, – it's, it's a great idea because if you both bring a different set of skills to the relationship, like to the page, mm. you, you come up with a product that is quite different to anything that you would ever write on your own. So it can be, like I know that in my particular set of circumstances, I learned an awful lot mm. from writing with my friend because um, she approaches writing in such a different way to, the, to what I do. Mm. And it taught me an awful lot about about sort of structure and different different ways of going about doing things. But I think I also brought something, you know, quite different to the page as well. And so I, I feel that, you know, sometimes, you know, well, you know, they say two heads are better than one. In the case of Alice Campion, it was five. Mm. Um, but it can also get very unwieldy. I mean, I, I can't imagine doing it with five people. I think it would no. be possible. Um, but, you know, they've managed it, which is fantastic. But um, I think in the case of two, particularly if you have a similar, I think the key to it is you've, there's got to be a similarity of voice in there somewhere because if you don't have that, then you've got disparate, um, you know, disparate sound to all your chapters. I mean, these guys got around it. Karen Perry gets around it by writing alternate chapters in alternate points of view. And that can work really well. So each of them takes a point of view. And that, so you want, you want those to sound different and that works beautifully. But if you're actually trying to meld voices like, they, like Alice Campion did, uh, it can be incredibly difficult unless you've got that similarity of voice somewhere in there. Absolutely. And I wonder when readers will be more accepting of the fact that it's, you know, they can act, just put their names on the cover. Karen Galise and Paul Perry. Why do they need to become Karen Perry? You know, it's... well, I guess because you know, from a marketing perspective, and and just from the 
just from the look of the book cover, particularly when you're talking about digital thumbnails, um, one name is a lot easier to, to put, you know, to make look good and to stand out. So it may be just from that perspective. I mean, James Patterson writes, you know, with a whole range of co-authors all the time. Yes. It's always his name is big and their name is small <laughs> um, because his name sells the books. So, I mean, I guess it's one of those things where um, if one of them had a name that, that, that was going to sell the book, then mm. it would be that they might use both of them. But otherwise, I think it just comes down to a, you know, purely an aesthetics thing. Yeah. I wonder if it'll get to the stage where Karen Perry is bigger than both of them and, you know, she starts taking on a life of her own. Oh, she probably already has, you know. <laughs> um, like Nikki French is a – I'm sure it's Nikki French. She was a, she's a thriller writer. She's two people trying mm. to think mother and daughter or something like that. And um, I don't think anyone could probably name who they are, but, you know, Nikki French is quite a well-known author who sells millions of books. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thing. It's like having an old, you know, having an old alternate ego. I like the idea of it in some ways. Really? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Okay. You Let can... yourself go. Mm-hmm. Be Karen Perry. <laughs> well, moving on to something quite different. I really love this link, and it's in a. It's on a blog called Interesting Literature, a library of literary interestingness. <laughs> <laughs> and Which is definitely a thing. Yes, and this post is called 27 Interesting Facts About Words and I think it's fascinating and it's got a bunch of definitions. Did you know that the word onomatomania means intense mental anguish at the inability to recall some word or to name a thing? Oh, no, but I have to tell you I probably experience it at least once a day. (laughs) That pristine originally meant primitive. And a a sentence containing a single word is a monepic sentence. This is, see, this is your, this is your blog, isn't it? This is actually like, this is, if you were actually going to just branch out and write Val's interesting blog, it would be a blog about like this, wouldn't it? It would be words, words and what they mean and how they came about and it's definitely there. Well, a word grubber was 18th century slang for someone who used unnecessarily long and complicated words in conversation. Well, there's the name of your blog. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I'm constructing an an entire sort of persona for you here. Well, speaking of long words, hippopotamonstrosiquipedeliophobia is the fear of long words. (laughs) I can see why. I could go on for hours, but I won't. We'll put the link in the show notes. Please don't. <laughs> but I love this post. Anyway, you have a link for us. I do. And mine is a, somewhat of a probably not quite as entertaining as that one, but useful. Mm. Um, so <laughs> I came across a link on the Jane Friedman blog, uh, mm. and Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, um, earlier this week. And it answers, um, well, put it this way, it puts together a, an argument for the old question of whether or not you should outline or not outline Mm. your novel Mm. Um, and it's a great little post it's written um, by the blogger from the New York book editors Um, her name's Tanya Strauss she's written a couple of different books but she talks very um, it talks about two in particular that she's written in two different ways so one of them she outlined because it was a very plot driven book and so she talks about why she outlined that particular book and how she went about it Um, and the second was very much a character-driven book, a character portrait, where the narrative was driven by the psychological and emotional forces within a person rather than external events. And so she just sort of like got her character together and started writing. So she approached that novel in a completely different way. So anyone who's kind of wondering whether or not they should outline or not outline or whatever might find this post very useful um, just from the perspective of I think there's an awful lot of shoulds out there. There's an awful lot of people saying, oh, you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you should you should outline and you should plot and, or you should not or whatever. Um, and I think what it comes down to, um, which is an important thing to bear in mind, is that, and I will stand by this, um, you, you don't know how you're going to write or how you will write a book until you do one. Yes. So I think that you need to actually 
have a go at it, see how it works. I mean, the way that I write books now is quite different to the way that I wrote when I first started writing them, you know, however many years ago. Mm. Um, my style has developed. It's not a particular thing. I don't, I don't plot necessarily. I don't sort of, you know, do whatever. But I have my own process that I go through. And I think that I've learned that. I've learned how I work as I go along. But yeah. I think it's always worth reading about how other people work and then taking things from it that you think will work for you and then applying them. But I will state again that I don't think you're going to ever know how you write a book or the best way that for you to go about writing a book until you actually finish one and then you'll have an idea of what you won't do next time. <laughs> yeah, you just have to try it. That's the yeah. only way to figure it out. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you know, like there's you can there's a lot of books out there you can read um, on, you know, structure and plot and how to do this and how to do that or, or you know, if you read Stephen King's on writing, well, you know, he's basically like anyone who plots is, you know, nuts. You know, you've got to just start with the idea and go for it. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, as I said, there's a lot of shoulds um, but the only way to work it out for yourself is to actually do it, I think. Yeah, and that's another should. <laughs> There's another should right there. Let's move on to our writing craft book this week. Speaking of which. Yes, and um, oh, it's, it's, it's a weird one. Okay, another um, one. Yeah, because I picked it up because, as you know, I, I like books on words and books on writing, and mm. I didn't really peruse it very well. <laughs> um, before I before okay. I bought it, I just thought, "Oh, that looks good," because it's it's called "Hot for Words: Answers to All Your Burning Questions About Words and Their Meanings." So that seems like the kind of book I would buy, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So it's by someone called Marina Orlova, and as it turns out, the book when I finally started reading it, and I kind of my, my eyes popped out of my head, and I thought, "What have I done?" <laughs> Oh. It's um, it does uh, explain where words are derived and you know their origins. So it's very much um, up my alley. You know words like um, birds and the bees, erotic orgy, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it has normal words like radical and um, uh, you know cocktail and <laughs> a variety of different words and 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 their origins. But unusually. Every single definition is accompanied by a scantily clad picture of Marina all over. So it's a little what? bit dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Valerie. I know. So I won't say too much more about the book, but perhaps if you've got children, don't buy it. There you go. It's a bit of an accident. <laughs> Oh, Val. That's, that's all fan- I have to say. That's fantastic. Where did you buy it? I can't remember. Okay. Did you have got the hard copy, hard, co- hard copy version of it? No, it's a paperback. But it, and it's full colour, as you can imagine, because they need to show off the scantily clad, corseted, you know, <laughs> pictures <laughs> in their full glory. That's fantastic. Yeah, a bit weird. That's just... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just, okay, I've got no words. Do you want to move on? Yeah, please do. <laughs> All right, so um, tell us about your blog this week. What have you got for us? You found us a blog to talk about. Oh, yes, I found an interesting blog by a guy called Damien Madden. And it's kind of, um, it's it's good because it's basically, what he does every week is interview somebody about creativity. And, you know, oh. people like Kate Forsyth have been on there and Gabrielle Toza. Hi, Kate. Hi, Gabrielle. And he's interviewed a number of authors, but also people who aren't authors, but they're in the creative space. And he asks them a series of questions about their creative process. So I just thought it was an interesting um, uh, look at, uh, at something that you can check in on every week and we'll put the link in the show notes. Damien Madden, thanks for sending that in to us. Thank you. Hmm. Um, All right, well, I'm moving right along because I want to share our writer-in-residence interview this week, which was a cracker as far as I'm concerned. Um, I had a fantastic chat with Anne Gracie, who is the author of, I think, we came to the conclusion that it was about 18 historical romance novels. She's incredibly, incredibly successful. She's been the former president of the Romance Writers of Australia. We had a very, very good chat about, um, obviously, historical novels. We talked about romance. We talked about all sorts of different things. And she's a very sensible um, practical lady, and I think she's definitely worth having a listen to whether you are interested in romance or not. She's all about the story, and I think that that's really, really important. 
Anne Gracie is the award-winning author of 18 novels, mostly historical romance novels and most published by Berkeley USA, and her books have been translated into many languages and sold around the world. Her latest book, The Spring Bride, is the third book in the Chance Sisters series and is out this month. Hello, Anne, and thank you for joining us. Oh, hello, Alison. It's really lovely of you to read. <laughs> Anytime. All right, so firstly, you were many things before you became a writer, including, according to your bio, a teacher, and you worked at a pet boarding kennel. What finally inspired you to pick up a pen to write a story, and how long ago was that? Okay, I oh, not, don't exactly remember how long ago. Um, probably 15, no, more than just over 15 years. Yeah. Um, I was on long service leave. I took... Um, I took long service leave and then filled out the rest of the year with leave without pay. So I had a year in which I travelled and I was backpacking on my own uh, through the world. Wow. Um, and when I was in countries where I didn't speak the language or, in fact, I've, I did actually started in Quebec where I speak very bad French. <laughs> they speak really good English. Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, stories started to spin. When I was younger, I, my, you know, when I was a student, and that, I was always planning to write or thinking of writing, and, and then stories always came to me. But then when I started full-time work, I was really busy. I'm a sort of an all-or-nothing person. Yeah. And, um, and I just, just, just the, the writing stuff went away. And when I was alone a lot in the evenings, in places where I couldn't speak the language, the story started to spin. I went out and bought a spiral-backed hand, you know, just yeah. for handwriting, just a, a notebook, and I started writing. And I just kept writing, and it became a really big part of my travel. I loved... Uh, I looked forward to the evenings when I would write, and when I came back to Australia, I had a whole heap of those notebooks filled with scribble, uh, a full-length novel and a bunch of other things. And anyway, uh, I went to a few parties because I was cut back just before Christmas, which is a very good time of year to come back <laughs> home. <laughs> and at two different, you know, I came back with a, with a firm resolution that I was going to become a writer and earn my living from writing because I had this vision of you know, sitting on a Greek island and writing and yes. a cottage in Brittany and writing and Perfect. all this. Um, so... When I went to some of these parties, in two different parties, there were two friends of mine who both earned their living from writing, didn't know each other uh, in quite different areas. One's freelance, um, more non-fiction than fiction writer, and the other one is a script writer, screenwriter for TV. Mm. Both of them in plenty of work, and I regarded them as absolute experts. So they said, ha, oh, you'll never earn a living writing fiction in Australia, Unless you write romance. Oh. And that was sort of borne out on me. Uh, with it, you know, the more I investigated, the more people said that. And I thought, all right. Uh, and then they said, oh, look, just get a Milton Burn, get a few Milton Burn. There's a formula. You can just do it. You can whack one off in a few weeks and then you can get back to your literary work. <laughs> and I thought, fine, okay, because I believed them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's one of the reasons why I've got myths, that Myths of Romance uh, article on my website because everything I was told pretty much was wrong. Oh, um, so anyway, I, I did collect a bunch of Northern Burns and read them. Thought, yeah, okay, I can write this. And but I I just picked the red ones because they were the nicest covers, the you know nice bright <laughs> covers. Um, I picked the old ones from the op shop, oh. and the old ones are the ones that people have given away because they don't want, yeah. not the ones that people keep and reread. And the heroes in the red ones um, were not particularly my cup of tea, but it didn't bother me because I just thought that's what you had to write. And so I was not writing something that pleased me particularly. I was imitating a genre that I didn't understand and didn't have any respect for. Right. And so I had a couple of rejections, um, and each time those rejections said... Too much background detail, too many minor characters, and not enough emotional punch. And at the time, I thought emotional punch was all about uh, sex, yes. um, and which it absolutely is not. Um, anyway, I 
I'm a bit stubborn. Someone says, no, you can't do something. And I think, well, hmm, I'll just show you. <laughs> and so I persisted. And I started to read more widely. And the more widely I read, the more I discovered writers who I thought were really good and stories that kind of stayed with me. And this absolutely surprised me because I was very firmly of the belief that that um, that romance was just junk fiction, that was just some kind of... Um, you know, paint-by-numbers genre. And I, and I still think that's very much a prevalent view about in the, in the non-romance reading area anyway um, and the non-romance writing area. However, so then I saw that uh, in my local library that Northern Burn were publishing um, Regency-era romances, and I said, oh... Because I was brought up on Georgia's High. I've been reading her since I was 11. She's funny. Her characterization's brilliant. Her stories are lovely. Um, and, and, and I love them. And suddenly I thought, oh, if this is regarded as romance, I can do this. Right. This is because... And it gave me permission to write more or less as myself. Right, and what you um, wanted to write. And what I wanted to write. And writing, writing characters that I liked and characters that I enjoyed, stories that I liked... Um, being able to be flippant and funny if I felt like it, you know, if, if it arose in the story, which it frequently does. Um, <laughs> and, and that's when I, um, that's the story, that's the first story that I, the first historical that I started to write was the one that first was published. Okay, so that you, so you sold your first historical romance that you wrote. Yeah. And yeah. what year was that? When did you sell that? That was 99. Okay, so why do you think that historical, because historical romance is incredibly popular, why do you think this is the case? Um, What do people like about it? Okay, Um, it's an escape to another world. It's kind of, it's a fun thing that is not like our everyday lives. It is completely accessible to us because... Um, so the Regency era, and, and if you're looking at something like this, Victorian era has become very popular too since um, uh, Downton Abbey. Um, it's an escape into a, into a world that's slightly different, but with people who are recognisable, who have similar kinds of, of, of um, difficulties, but it's not quite the same. So it's like, I don't know, slipping into a fabulous frock and going to a ball and then... <laughs> You know, going on with your, your everyday, life. everyday life. You know, it's it's fun. They're fun. Yeah, escape. And um, do you have to? So, I mean, you know, I know that um, historical readers are very, very picky about detail. I mean, I've some seen a, a lot of, them, of forums. Some of them, some of them, only some. Of them. Okay. <laughs> well, but my question then has to be: How much research is involved in your novels, and how difficult is it to decide just how much detail you need to put into the story? It's exactly the same as writing a contemporary. Okay. Um, that in that you have to get things right so it feels right for people. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the some stories I don't have to do very much research at all. Um, if it's like the current situation with it, with my um, summer, autumn, and winter brides, um, those who oh, are sorry, spring <laughs> haven't done summer yet. Um, <laughs> those they're all set in uh, London. Yeah. Um, they're all set in the Regency era, which I know pretty well. Yeah. Um, there are not too many things that I have to research. The, the, the books that I've had to really research was one when I set it partly in, or largely, in Regency era Egypt. Oh. And so, but online these days, um, there are all these old diaries that have been digitised and are available to read online. Oh. So I was able to access travellers going through Egypt in 1816 and, and use some of their impressions um, and, uh, and attitudes and, and descriptions and things like that. Um, so, read, you know, a lot of the research is a lot easier than it used to be. Yeah. Um, so some books need a lot of research, some don't. Yeah. My rule of thumb with any kind of research is 90%. It's the iceberg. Yeah. You know, what you see in a book, because people are not reading historical romances to For read the history. history. Yeah. 
they're reading it for the story and the characters. Yeah. You've got to get the history right because if you don't, it throws people right out. And I have made a couple of <laughs> boo-boos. Um, <laughs> I, I said a book in Spain once. Uh, no, it, yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't the Spain one, sorry. But I had a, a character whose mother had gone on, the, um, on a pilgrimage to Lourdes to pray oh. for a son. And that would have been 70 years before St. Bernadette had her vision. That's the trouble. <laughs> and Catholics from all over the world worked to me. And I had to go mea culpa. Oh, dear. <laughs> because, well, the thing is that I'd done so much research for that book, and that was one thing that I hadn't done because I thought I knew that. Right. Okay. So, you know, it's very easy to make mistakes, um, you know, because the things that you don't look up are the things that you think you know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was convinced. Anyway, so um, the research, you know, people think historicals have to be full of, of descriptions of furniture and descriptions of clothes and stuff. Well, if you're writing a contemporary novel... Do you describe the chair in enormous amount of detail? I'm looking at a chair now with carved arms and and woven bamboo sides and an embroidered... I mean, it's a chair. Yeah, you sit in the chair. You sit in the chair. Mm. So you use as much research as you need and as much description as you need to paint the picture, to to give the feeling of being there, Um, but no more. Okay. Because because you don't want to bore the readers with with chunks of history, and that's the trouble. If you do enormous amounts of research, um, it, 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 you might lose that for the. I, I know somebody who did a huge amount of research for uh, medieval gloves, and she's learned all about how to make them and embroider them and bead them and all this sort of stuff. And then, when she was editing the story, because she'd spent oh, weeks on that. On the gloves, because you know the gloves were pretty important in the scene that she'd written, and then in the editing of the story, she realised actually that scene's got to go. Oh, the whole scene went. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and you just—it's not just a scene; it's weeks of work going out the window. Oh, yeah, that's... and people people often keep those things in because of those weeks of work, and yeah. I think that's really bad. Yeah. Um, so I often, if it's clothing, that's very easy. Um, I just go when in my draft he entered the room dressed in XXXX and at the end I look up all the XXXXs and, and do the research for those okay. because the things might change. Yeah, okay. You know, the places might change, the, the streets might change, you might, you know, you need, your, your, your plot might change and that affects what, what you need. Okay. So, yeah, a lot of that is draft work. All right, so we talked a little bit earlier about some of the misconceptions that people have about writing romance. Mm-hmm. Um, so the formula thing is one. Um, what are some of the others, and how do you like? Do you do you go out of your way to dispel them, or do you just get on with your life and write your books? Um, a bit of both. Mm-hmm. When I was involved in more involved in Romance Writers of Australia, mm. uh, I was on the committee for six years, and I was a president for several years, and it was my mission in life to to promote a better understanding of romance and to get people who'd never read romance, people who were like me before I started reading romance, mm. to, to read romance and to um, just, just have a look at some, you know, recommend some good books. And people think, because a whole lot of my friends had never read romance as well. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, when I got published, they, um, some of them read them. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> I would get comments like, I read your book. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> it's utter amazement. Yeah. And, and, and because it wasn't what they expected. Right. Uh, so, and, and, and they were kind of a bit embarrassed that they'd enjoyed a romance. Right. Um, and, and, but, you know, I think you've just got to keep an open mind. You've got to realise that romance is a hugely variable genre mm. there's so many different kinds and i firmly and utterly believe that there is a romance that'll please everyone i can find a romance that will please not that one romance will please everyone but but for every person there is, there a, is a kind of romance that they will love mm. okay so and there's some really literary romance and then there's some very not really literary but quite often i think um people say like uh, i i haven't read Shades of Grey and friends tell me, oh, the writing's really clunky. And I say, stop looking at what she's not doing 
and look at what she is doing. Yeah, she's because something's gone right there. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and I say in when I'm doing writing classes, um, what, what would you rather read? A beautifully written, exquisitely detailed, literary, ordinary story mm. or a clunkily written, fabulous story. Mm. People go for the fabulous story every time. Mm. And while I would hope that all writing strives to be the best it can be, yeah. um, storytelling traps writing every time. Okay. All right, so you've actually written several series um, and romance is a genre that uh, likes a good series, yep. um, including your latest one, The Chance Sisters, which you call, is it just, do you call it The Chance Sisters series? Yep. Or, some yeah. people call it The Chance Sisters, some call it The Seasonal Brides, yep. Okay, so what's the key to a successful series? Like how do you, um, like is it, is it all, does it all start with having, you know, in this particular instance you've got the four main characters. Does it all start with having the four main characters that are going to work, you know, as, as far as, you know, as being the heroines of their own books? I mean, how do you keep track of the characters and the overarching storylines and, you know, what, what, how do you go about it? What's, what's your key to success? Well, each, each, after, this is my third series that I've done yeah. and I, um, each one has been, in a, a, you know, a different and I've kind of tried to experiment a little bit. My very first series arose out of my first book with Berkeley, which is Penguin in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a book that I had, in fact, started for Harlequin, uh, and then I'd had to take a break because my father was extremely ill and I, I just couldn't keep up the work and the, the yep. writing. I was yep. still working at that stage. Yeah. And... Um, so, and it wasn't contracted at that point because Harlequin used to contract after I'd finished a book rather than before. Right. And so, anyway, um, I wrote that and it was long and I had was going to have to cut it. And my very first book, I didn't mention this, but my very first book, when I sold it to Harlequin, um, I, it was about 140,000K and oh. 1,000 words. And um, uh, it, I had to cut it back to 85, wow. which nearly killed me, but which was a really brilliant thing to do yeah. um, because cutting always makes a book better. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I had this half-finished book and then I finished it and and I thought, I don't want to have to cut 30,000 words out of this. Um, and I, my first book, I had entered it in the Rita, which is a, a big competition for Romance Writers of America. Yeah. And it, it's sort of like the Oscars for Romance Writers. Yeah. And my book had finaled. And which was pretty huge. That's pretty exciting. And it got me an American audience. Yeah. And it got me some attention and it got me some uh, editor attention and it got me some uh, agent attention. Yeah. So I contacted the agent who'd, who I talked to. Yeah. And, she, and said, look, remember me, would you be interested? And she said, I remember you. Yes, I wouldn't send me the book. So I sent her the book and she said, yes, I can sell this in the States. Right. And she did. And my first event was about a, a plain girl who was the older sister and she had a bunch of beautiful younger sisters. Right. And and a horrendous grandfather who was looking after them. Mm. And that, my, you know, my editor bought it and blah, blah. And then she said to me, well, which sister's next? And I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> and... And and she said, well, you know, a series. And see, in Melbourne, then they hadn't wanted a series. Admit, my editor had emphatically not wanted a series. Right. So it never occurred to me that this bunch of girls would need a story. So I didn't set them up for any stories. Right. <laughs> and so I had to dig around, and that was a very good thing to have to do. And in fact, it become that series became more the guys' stories as much as the girls. Right. Um, the next series, I was trying for a, a guy-related series, and I did four guys who'd been together in school and friends who went to war together. Right. And uh, and they were all a bit damaged by war uh, in various ways. Um, and then this, you know, was a return to the girls-connected series, but they're not actual sisters. Two of them are blood sisters, yeah. and the other two are friends they picked up along the way. So each time, and, and I was experimenting with, I thought I would try uh, to set up the four girls and the four guys from the very beginning, see how that went. Right. 
And by the time I got to the third one, I thought, nope, he's not right for Jane. Uh, and so I brought in a completely new Ooh, and different hero. New blood. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, so it doesn't always to... work out how you think it's going to. No, not for me. I'm a... I'm a what they call an organic writer or fly by the seat of the pants oh, writer. Well, that was going to be my next uh, question. You know, do yeah, you plot yeah. them out I'm carefully? Trying, I'm trying to plot more because I think it will save me a few side trips that I don't really need to make. Yeah. Um, where I go up the wrong alley and think, no, nah, this isn't working, this isn't working, and then I have to pull thousands of words out and mm. start again. Oof. So um, but uh, that said... Um, I write consecutively. In this, in the book that's just out, there was a moment where the heroine completely surprised me with what she said to the hero. Oh. And it completely, it was, it, became, it was a turning point. Mm. I had not set it up as a turning point. I hadn't planned her to say that. She just said it when I was in the white hot heat of scribbling. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I thought, wow. And, and I, would, I, I, I vividly remember it. I was in the library. I, I do a lot of my writing by hand in the library. Wow. Uh, the, the early parts of the scenes I'll do by hand. And, you know, this just came out. And I, I, I remember coming away from the library thinking, wow, now what am I going to do? Because what I planned for the next few scenes was, was no longer possible. Right. So, um, and that's really good because I think if I can surprise myself, if a character can surprise me, characters, can, they can surprise readers and readers... Well, if readers are like me, they like a, they love a surprise every now and then. <laughs> so, where do you start then when you're writing a story? Like, do you start with a character? Do you start with a plot? Do you start with an inst? Like, where do you begin with your no, organic writing process? Characters usually, yep. um, because romance is a very, very much a character-driven genre. Yeah. Um, you know, you can have you can have uh, the bare bones of a plot, and you could have give it to six different writers. And they would come up with six different characters, and they'd be six different stories. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's the characters. Um, it's learning more about the characters. It's, uh, but I also like a little bit of an adventure along the way as well. Yeah. Okay. So I like to mix things up a little bit because that's they're the sort of stories that I like to read. Yeah. And still do. Yeah, okay. So you mentioned this before, but this is something that I think comes up quite a lot for people who start out thinking that they're going to write romance and that, Mm -hmm. you know, they understand it and whatever. But you mentioned this business about emotional punch. And it's, I think, one of the most difficult things to get right with Mm -hmm. a romance novel. Can you explain a little bit about what it is and how you make it work? Like how how difficult is it to keep the story concentrated on that and how do you convey it? Like what are some of the things that you do? for a start, that's what emotional punch isn't. Right. And and I think that's what most people think it is (laughs) and most writers try to do. Most writers, most people and beginning writers... I think emotional punch is about characters emoting. Yes. <laughs> it's not. It's, oh, it's not. not. It's delivering the emotional punch to the reader. It's right. those moments, you know, with yourself, when you've read a book and there's a moment where you, where you tear up or the moment where you go, oh, oh, and a moment where sort of long after you finish the book you still dwell on that, you know, that scene. Yeah. That's emotional punch. Right. It's it's people. Oh, now there's a quote, um, and I'm just trying to think by whom. Uh, he's uh, it might even be Michael Haig who who talks about screenwriting, but it might not be because I, I I collect all sorts of quotes that they're cluttered in my head, and I forget who they are, especially <laughs> when I'm just doing a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and anyway, it's um, readers. I think he's talking about people watching movies. Um, but it's exactly the same for readers. People read to experience emotion. Right. They don't, they're not reading about somebody else's emotion. They want to feel the experience of that, that character. Right. So it's, it's when you're touched by a character, it's when you're moved by something they've done, when you're surprised, when you worry for them. So how, do you, that, how do you write that, Anne? You build a connection with the, between the reader and the uh, and, and the writer and the, the characters. Right. Um, char- empathy, reader empathy with characters is something that's very underrated, but I think is really important. Mm. People 
people don't know anything about... Before a book comes out, one of my books, say this third book that's just out, The Spring Bride, people don't know anything about what the story's going to be. They've met Jane, but she was, she's a heroine. She's very much a person in the background mm-hmm. in, in the other story. She's just one of the sisters, and she's the youngest and the, and, and the least kind of bold or whatever. In fact, a friend of mine... When they asked me, you know, uh, who was I writing, and I was just starting, I said, oh, Jane's story. She said, oh, she's boring. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, yeah, I can understand that because I have to, you know, you, you do have to kind of showcase your main characters. Yeah. And some characters will sort of burst out and be, be you know, make themselves known anyway, but you can't have too many of those. No. Um, so she was a bit in the background. And then the hero is someone no one's ever met or heard of or yeah. had referred to. Yeah. So what makes people want to come back to it? That world. Yeah. They like the world. They like the people. Um, they, uh, they enjoy the journey. Yeah. And that's, a lot of that's to do with character empathy. When I have a, a character from a previous book appear in the current book, um, I get readers saying, oh, I was so happy to see so-and-so okay. come back. Yeah. You know? So and they yeah. feel like they know them. They absolutely feel like, like they know them. old friends. Yes. Yes, okay. yes. And, and not, not necessarily old friends. Sometimes they're, they're old enemies, you know, yeah, people yeah. They, they love to hate. Because yeah. you do, when you get a really good villain, you love to hate them. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So the intrigue and the, you know, character, yeah, just connecting with the characters. I said it's a character-driven genre. Yeah. And so the, the, the writers that are most successful at that connect people with those characters. Okay. All right, so just switching gears slightly, let's talk about this business about the author platform, which has come up, you know, for everyone in the last few years. Um, what are your thoughts on the idea of it? Have you ever consciously set out to build yourself a brand or an author platform? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. I haven't because um, I think author platform works very well. It, like, okay, I was a beekeeper. If I was writing bee stories, that's yeah. my author platform. Right. I, you know, I've put bees in a few stories. Yeah. I'm no longer keeping bees. Yeah. Um, it's not, there's not much of a platform there. Right. I, I, I don't, I don't really know what, I think the author platform is a bit of a distraction. Okay. Uh, I believe that people connect with the books and the stories. Right. And if you like the books and the stories, I don't care who the who the authors were, but I guess the the reason it's come up is the is the difficulty these days of actually um, because there's so many books available, you know, all at once on Amazon or wherever you might be, is connecting readers with oh, books yeah, they I might like. Oh yeah, I completely understand that. But how how okay? What's going to be more effective? Is, is it, and of course, I'm arguing from the you know I'm, I'm being the devil's advocate here, I suppose. Of course, yeah. Um, the if you've got an author shouting, look at me, I'm so interesting, yeah. or look at my book, this is fabulous. So what? I know you're on Twitter and I know mm-hmm. that you have a website. And yep. do, like, do you do what other aspects of it do you actually do and as Facebook, far as... I'm on Facebook, Oh, you do Twitter. Facebook as well, yeah? Yep, Facebook, Twitter, um, and I've got a, a very old-fashioned web, web page. Yep. Um, I do an occasional blog. I'm, I'm very slack on the blog Thing, but I also every fortnight I blog with the Word Wenches, and I suppose that's probably the strongest platform yeah, I've got. Yeah. The Word Wenches is a group of there are there are eight of us um, where all historical novelists, um, and some of them are major bestsellers in the US. Um, and uh, yeah, we all write. We we all like each other's work, and we all like um, historical. We write historical. See, so I, that's, I, I think a that's a brilliant idea because that's a cooperative thing uh, which which takes the pressure off you to have to maintain it all yourself. Yep. You're helping to build the build interest and in, um in the historical romance yep. area and you're cross-referencing with each other's books so yep. that you know yep. if people like you then and you like these people chances yep. are they will also like these people's yeah, books. Yeah, and we've done a couple of uh, anthologies, Christmas anthologies together. Yeah. Um, but see, this blog has been going for, we've just celebrated our ninth anniversary. Fantastic. So that's a long time in Blogland. Yes, it is a long time. Yeah, time yeah, in the game, yeah. very yeah. much. We always yeah. talk about time in the game as being as important as how much time you actually spend on these things. Yeah. 
Um, all right. Well, then let's talk about your top tips for aspiring romance writers. What have you got for us, Anne? Well, Three I think top it's pretty tips. much the same for not just romance, for any kind of writing. Yeah. Um, popular fiction, really. Um, okay, top tip number one, read widely. Yeah. And find, find authors whose stories you absolutely love to bits. Yeah. Because that gives you then permission to, to dig down deep in yourself and write the stories you really want to write. Yeah. Instead of thinking, oh, this is a romance, I have to put this on the page and I have to put that. I mean, there are all these, people will give you all these rules, like you have to keep the hero and heroine uh, together the whole time. Well, that's true for a short romance yeah. uh, of, say, 50,000 words or, or less. Um, the Autumn Bride, the first one in this, this current series, the hero doesn't appear until about page 100. Yeah, yeah. And there's not a lot there on a lot. And I was really worried about that when I was writing it, but I just couldn't write it any other way. Yeah. Um, because the, the story had to be told. You know, the story is what the story is. Yeah. And I did really worry about that. And then in this book, the, the hero and, and heroine, he's disguised as a gypsy. Um, he's a spy, but he's also got to keep undercover for things that will become clear if you ever read the book. Yeah. And she is a, uh, a young lady um, of the time. Now, there's no way that they can sort of sneak off together and, and cuddle and kiss and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and so I just had to go with that. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to have mattered to people because of the, because of the authentic, you know, it, it was an authentic thing to do. Yeah. Perfect. You know, she's a good girl. She's a good girl of the time. She's determined to marry well. Why would she go and jeopardize everything she, she wants, everything she's ever dreamed about, um, for the sake of this gypsy. So would that be your second tip? It's like to be authentic to what yes, you want to, to go do? Tr- to go deep and go tr- and be true to the characters. Yeah. Because I think readers will follow you anywhere as long as you're true to the characters. Yeah. If you completely manipulate them and just have a character doing, you know, whatever you need them to do at that moment for the sake of the plot, yeah. I, don't, I don't follow that. They're, they're what I call... Wall bangers, you know the, the books that you start reading, you chuck it against the wall. <laughs> no, she wouldn't do that. I'm sick of that. <laughs> How many more times can you can you invent something that she knows for me to believe it? All of a sudden, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. So and what's, so what's your one. last tip? And the last one is to write, 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 write. Um, I've had so many people who love to tell me about the story that they're going to write. And, and, and I've uh, seen people over so many years and they oh, and I've thought up a new scene for my book. They haven't written a word. Um. And you can, I can sit and plan a book. I can have a whole book sort of worked out on paper. Um, I sell on synopsis these days. I can do that. You know, I can, I can write a story that sounds terrific. The minute I actually start writing it, my characters will take, take over, change the story. Mm. Um, uh, you know, as I said before, surprise me, go in a different direction. And if I tried to force them back into that, then it wouldn't be convincing. It wouldn't be as as right for the characters. And I think, you know, if if you're assuming that connection with the characters is what people like about your stories, then you've got to treat your characters with respect and let them reveal themselves. Fantastic. Mm. All right. Well, Anne, thank you so much for your time today. I think My you've pleasure. been fantastic. So much information in there. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate it. And, of course, the new book is out now, The Spring Bride, yep. uh, book three in The Chance Sisters. And I hope it, you know, goes gangbusters for you. Thank you so much, Alison. All right. Really, thanks. really been a pleasure. Great interview, Al. Yeah, it was It was really interesting. I, I just, you know, I, I, it's always really interesting to talk to someone who's, who's got so much experience across, you know, a genre. And I've really found it interesting the way that she came to writing romance and how she sort of, it was something that she had never really considered. And then she realized it was what she really liked doing. And I think sometimes we're not always writing, we write what we think we should write, not necessarily what we, we really want to be writing. And I think it's, it's, a, it's an excellent lesson in maybe listening, you know, to your, to your heart, so to speak. And so prolific. I know. I'm so mm. impressed. <laughs> But let's move on to our working writer's tip this week. We have a uh, question um, from Velvet and Velvet has um, said that she has some questions about how to secure interviews with celebrity types. And uh, Velvet has mentioned that sometimes they, 
you know, she, she contacted a particular celebrity through the, that celebrity's media manager and explained the request over the phone. And the media manager said, yeah, look, I can't see what's in it for us, to be honest. I can see that this interview would probably be a big deal for you, but it wouldn't be for us. And she said she could email the info about the publication, and which which she did, the, the writer did. And then the media manager said that the athlete's schedule was too full, even mm. though the writer asked for a 10 to 15-minute interview. So Velvet's questions are, should you clearly outline in your email to media managers, etc., what's in it for them? And in terms of structure, should this be at the top of the email? And what do you think she was referring to when she said what's in it for us? What are celebs and their agents looking to get from interviews like this? And also, what general tips do you have for getting interviews with well-known personalities? Why don't you start, Al? <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I guess, you know, I'm reading the email and I've just got lots of questions. Like, I'd like to know, did she have a publication secured? Was there an actual angle for the story? Was the athlete the actual, like, was he the subject of the, I mean, he, he can't, for a 10 to 15 minute interview, he can't have been the subject of the, it wasn't a profile about him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then I'm sort of with the publicist. I'm like, what's in it for me? So if it was just a, I want to do an interview with him because then I want to submit a story on spec, like, you know, that kind of works with at, at certain levels, but it's not going to work with a well-known athlete who yeah. is probably got a million interview. I mean, this is the other thing. There's these, these people are in demand. There's a lot of interview requests for them. So if you're going to go to someone like this, you need to have a story locked in and you probably want to have the front cover of the Women's Weekly locked in with it, yep. you know. Or the Good Weekend. Yeah, and so they tend to be, like, I, in my experience, those kind of articles are always just commissioned in-house from the publication in the sense that the editor thinks, I want to have X celebrity on the cover, um, let's, you know, let's set it up, organise a photo shoot and we'll probably use one of our experienced staff, um, you know, either experienced freelancers or on staff, um, you know, feature writers to actually do the story. Like in, in my experience, I, I think that unless you've actually got a home for the story and it's a very nice looking mansion, then it's probably <laughs> not going to happen. Well, am I wrong? It's probably not going to happen. Um, do you have any further? I mean, I don't know. I, am I am I being too negative? No, no, no. I think that's pretty accurate. I think that the main thing is that the bigger the celebrity, the harder it's going to be to get them. And Always. even though you might think that it's great exposure for that celebrity, the reality is that often when they're really big, they don't need the exposure. Uh, the, the exposure. Mm. So, you know, if you're looking for someone as big as Kate Blanchett or Nicole Kidman. You're not going to get them unless you have, as Alison said, secured that they're going to get the front cover and often they might even say, we're only going to do it if you do four pages in the magazine. And also they're only going to do it when they've got something to sell. So with, exactly. someone, like, with like, someone like Nicole or Kate, it's, it's got to be around a big movie, in which mm. case their publicist has probably already locked it in with high-profile magazines. You know, It's so, not going to be you ringing up saying, you know, I thought I might try it on spec for somebody. So here's the way you do it if you want Sorry. a Nicole, if you, you want to, um, you know, interview Nicole Kidman or Kate Blanchett or someone like that. You start off with the smaller ones. You're not going to get Nicole or Kate straight away for sure. You start off with the smaller ones. That is, you know, the people who ha- are up-and-coming actors or up-and-coming musicians and you show that you can write a profile of an mm. artist in that way. And then you become, over time, it takes time to become a trusted freelancer to that particular magazine and when you become a trusted freelancer to that particular magazine when the opportunity comes up to interview Guy Pearce or whatever then you get the call and you don't yeah they'll they'll basically line it up for you yeah so but to get to that level you need to become the trusted the trusted freelancer and you can only do that by having by submitting regular articles to that publication over a period of time that they love Mm. So that's right. it in a nutshell, really. It takes time. Mm, mm. Yeah, you've got to – I mean, there are just certain certain jobs that need to be built up to and those kind of jobs are one of them. Mm. So yeah. if you kind of think that there's the, um, for want of a better word, up-and-coming celebrity, they're likely to give you the interview because they want any exposure. Then yeah. you've got the middle-level celebrity who, you know, they might do the interview, they might not, but you do need to show it, show what's in it for them, you know, promise them three pages or something like that. Then you've got the A-grade celebrity who is really only going to do it if, they've, if, if it's all pre-arranged and it's part of a deal and um, – 
and uh, they 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 call the shots. Essentially, it's almost on their terms. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So All there right. you go. Hopefully, that's well done, Valerie. <laughs> All right, so that brings us to the end of our podcast. Thank you to everybody who's left us a review on iTunes. We'd really love it if you take 30 seconds to do that because it really helps us in the rankings. And um, please do let us know what you think of the podcast through social media or um, or email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. That's also the email if you want us to answer a question, just like we did for Velvet. But where can we find you on social media, Al? Um, you will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, T-A-I-T, um, on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer and also at my home on the internet, alisontate.com. And you, Valerie? Uh, you will find me at Valerie Koo on everywhere. <laughs> exactly. How did I know so, you were going to say that? What will you be writing this afternoon, Al? Uh, I've, well, I'm actually working on a, a new uh, middle grade idea. So I'm sort of like oh, having. Fantastic. The, I am, yeah. I'm having the to outline or not to outline discussion with myself, and I've compromised as I usually do by not outlining the first fifteen thousand words, and then I've done a little sketchy outline of the rest of the book, just so I've got an idea of where I'm going. A little bit of a map, you know. I like a map. Yes. And you, Valerie, what are you doing? I will be looking at this book, Hot for Words, a little bit more closely oh, and wondering where in the world I bought it and whether I should hide it now. Well, maybe, <laughs> or maybe you're wondering how you can create one for yourself because, you know, really, <laughs> it's your book, Val. Yes. <laughs> or not. All right. Yeah, or not. <laughs> I don't think I can actually pose in these poses. <laughs> it's really quite strange. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening, everyone, and we will chat to you next week. Bye.